All right. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. My name is Jennifer Roach. Today we are going to talk about baptism for the dead. Um, if you've been following along, you know we are going through the Come Follow Me readings and bringing out some questions that our evangelical friends might have about the text as we go along, trying to offer you a better way to understand what it is that they're worried about, what their concerns are, so that you might be able to give them a better answer, um, something from your faith that might open them up and, and be a gift to them. Um, before we get started, since this is not New Testament stuff, but since we talk about Come Follow Me here, I want to make sure that you are aware of a fantastic resource for next year. So next year, Come Follow Me is doing the Book of Mormon year. Um, I teach gospel doctrines, so I'm already thinking ahead towards like, oh, like what, what am I going to do with some of these things? The most wonderful new resource from Dr. Grant Hardy. He's a BYU professor. It's the Annotated Book of Mormon. It's very thick. Um, basically, it's the whole text of the Book of Mormon interspersed with all of these are Dr. Hardy's notes on all kinds of various things. It's it really is the closest that I have seen to um, what might be comparable to like a study Bible. It feels like a study Book of Mormon. Um, there is a Kindle version. Let me tell you why I don't love the Kindle version and, and spent the money and bought the hardback version is the Kindle version gives you the text of the Book of Mormon Dr. Hardy's notes are all footnotes. To get to the footnote, you have to click about three different things and then click three things to get back. The whole point is his annotations, his notes. And so the Kindle edition is just not very usable, in my opinion. Um, maybe I'm old. You can disagree with me on that if you want. Um, but it's a great resource, and I highly encourage you to pick this up. You can actually get it um, in the Fair Bookstore for a great price or anywhere that you buy books. Um, really, really have enjoyed diving into this so far already. The other thing I want you to be sure that you know about is um, I'm going to talk to you a lot about the in-person conference that Fair did in August. Tried to highlight a bunch of the talks and speakers there. Fair also does an online only conference. I don't actually know if this is the first year of it or it's something they had just had on hiatus for a while, but it's specifically focused on just a Book of Mormon and the issues that come up there. Um, so that conference will be um, this fall. Richard Bushman will be presenting along with many others who are fantastic scholars that you really should be listening to. On some of this stuff, you can register for free online, fairlatterdaysaints.org. It will be fantastic. Okay, baptism for the dead. We've talked about that concept on this channel before. Um, go back probably early June. There's an episode in there, kind of our first stab at understanding why evangelicals are so bothered by this doctrine. And today we're gonna gonna look at it from a slightly different angle. And we're gonna use 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 32 as our jumping off point. And it says this, this is Paul writing. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? 
Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul's in the middle of making this argument about the resurrection of Jesus has actually happened. The physicality of that actually matters, right? He had a real body that really died, that really came back to life. That's what he's trying to, to get people to understand here. And this bit about baptism for the dead, it's almost a little side point for him. It's almost uh, like, like, see, like, look at this practice. This doesn't even make any sense if the dead aren't resurrected. So evangelicals have a really, really tricky problem here. Um, he here's the dilemma. Evangelicals generally have a view of the Bible that's called inerrancy. Um, it literally means without error. So they believe the Bible has no errors in it. Now, depending on who you talk to, they're going to nuance that a, a, a number of different ways. But in general, it's a belief that the evangelical movement has grown up with, that the Bible is without error. So they they don't really have the of taking a verse like this and saying, oh, that's not real. That was added in later. That's a mistranslation. That that's any of any of those things. They have to they have to deal with it in some way where it's not an error. And so what I want to do is explain to you kind of the popular arguments of how they do that. Um, hopefully you can see why they're doing that. And then I have an idea for you about maybe how to move the conversation kind of out of the stuck corner that it usually gets into. Um, okay, first, one way that they deal with this is basically to say, well, who knows what that means? <laughs> um, one popular evangelical leader says it this way. The phrase baptism for the dead is so obscure, so perplexing, and the meaning is so uncertain and the variety of interpretations so numerous that it seems wise to say that we have no idea what that phrase means. It, I mean, in one sense, it's a fair answer. If you don't know something, you should say so and not pretend that you know. However, it's not a very satisfying one to just throw your hands up and say, well, we don't know what it means, so let's not pay any attention to it. Um, is that the is that the prominent view of evangelicals? Probably not, um, but it's it's up there. That's certainly in their top five on how to understand this this verse. A slightly more sophisticated explanation goes something like this: um, the baptism that Paul is talking about here, he's using dead in like a metaphorical sense. He's not talking about actual dead people, but but he's talking about those who are dead in their sin. So baptism for the dead is sort of recast as just regular baptism. It's it's they were dead in sin, and baptism now makes them alive in Christ. And it doesn't really work in the whole um, scope of Paul's argument. He's trying to say 
Jesus had a real body that really died and really resurrected, it would be weird to stick in this, oh, he actually, he actually, this actually is metaphorical, not literal. Like it doesn't, it would cut his argument short. So another possible way evangelicals explain this, um, it's really, it's a little bit odd and you have to kind of torture the sentence structure to make it work. But the argument is this, um, baptism for the dead actually means baptism because of the dead. This does not grammatically work. They're kind of grasping at things here, but let me tell you what they mean by it. Um, they mean the people who had already died had such strong testimonies that they were still inspiring currently alive people to get baptized themselves. So they recast baptism of the dead instead of that meaning these are people who are in need of baptism. They say these dead people, their faith was so extraordinary that even people who hear about them want to be baptized. It doesn't really work, but it it's it's in the top five of what they would say. Um, a, a, there's a slight kind of variation on that where people say, well, Paul is talking about the martyrs who bravely face death in the first century, and they're still inspiring other people to come to Christ. It's the same argument, though. Um, a, a slightly less tortured explanation, um, and probably the one that just logically and grammatically might make the most sense. I don't buy it, but it probably makes more sense than the baptism because of the dead. Here, here's the one that makes sense. They say, perhaps here, Paul is talking about people who came to some kind of faith in Christ, but died before they had had a chance to be baptized. Um, it's more like, a, have you ever known someone who had like a family member who maybe they Maybe they were taking a, a long hike. They were hiking the Appalachian Trail and they die in the middle of it. So their family member decides, I'm going to symbolically finish that hike for them on their behalf. Everybody knows that, that on behalf of isn't really that person finishing it. It's, a, it's intended to be a comforting ritual for the people who are still alive. And that's, that's sort of probably the most logical explanation that evangelicals have is these are folks who they had faith in Christ. They had not been able to be baptized. A friend or a family member said, I'm going to complete their journey for them and get baptized for them. But it didn't really mean anything. Okay. Um, the, the, I'll talk you through one other possible way that they understand this. Um, it's something like this practice is mentioned one time in the Bible. So it's not enough to build a doctrine on. And I mean, they're partly right. This passage is the only time when that phrase is found in the Bible. Um, but the Bible is not the only history that we have access to. Right. So 1 Corinthians is written 
like roughly 55 AD. Fast forward all the way to 393 AD, 350 years later, longer than the United States has been a country. And some churches are still writing about the practice of baptism for the dead. In, in 393, no new biblical texts are being written. So we don't, we don't consider those scripture. However, they are scripture-like writing. Sometimes they're called the Apocrypha. Um, that talk about subjects that maybe are not in the Bible. Um, and as it turns out, there's an awful lot about baptism for the dead in some of those documents. We'll look at one e example, and that's the Apocrypha that comes out of Egypt. Uh, we call Christians in Egypt, we call them Coptic Christians. The word Coptic is it's just derived from the Greek word that means Egyptian, so they're Egyptian Christians. Um, and it's actually Hugh Nibley who put a lot of this work together initially. He traces through the Coptic writings and shows dozens of them where they're talking about baptism for the dead. Eventually, other Christians radically distance themselves from the practice. But at least at that time, before about 400, it's 451 AD, before 51 AD, the Coptics don't distance themselves from that. They're still practicing it. Um, so in the early Christian church world, there are lots of competing ideas in the various places on different um, practices, different beliefs. There's no like standardized, here's what it, it is to believe to be a Christian, right? There's no statement of faith at that point. Um, there's no creeds is another way of saying that. And the creeds are developed because they're trying to basically capsulize, here's what Christians believe. However, <laughs> that happened in a messy, a messy process um, of a series of councils. Now, there's, there's many different ways to categorize what those councils were. One of the ways to categorize them is major and minor councils. The major councils um, would have included leaders representing all of the different areas in the known world where Christianity was being practiced. They all are sending a leader. Everybody is putting their heads together to decide what is it that we want to say that we believe. And it's a committee. And like all committees, things kind of go weird. And, and that's why the creeds kind of go weird. Um, but, but that was the, the major councils. However, there were a number of minor councils. And some of them we would call them minor because they're dealing with minor issues. But some of them we call minor because only a handful of locations are even represented. Not every physical location sends a representative to these minor councils. One such minor council is called the Fourth Canon of the Synod of Hippo. It's held in 393 AD, and in that council, here's what they decide. The ruling was confirmed for, nope, that's not my quote. Uh, here's what they decide. The Eucharist shall not be given to dead bodies, nor baptism conferred upon them. Now, apparently, giving Eucharist to dead bodies was a practice. That's something different nor baptism conferred upon them. It doesn't say baptism for the dead. 
because of that statement, Eucharist should not be given to dead bodies. There's a little ambiguity. Were people baptizing dead bodies? Probably not. I don't know. If you know, leave me a note in the comments. Um, the ruling was confirmed four years later in another minor council, the Third Council of Carthage. Um, but the Coptic Christians were not represented at either council. So to be honest, they didn't feel particularly bound to the decisions being made there. Hugh Nibley compiles all kinds of references to baptism for the dead in the Coptic Church. Eventually, the Coptic Church splits away from the, the Roman Church in 451 AD, just 50 years after they're basically told, you need to stop practicing baptism for the dead. There's a lot of issues that make them split off. This is just one of them, but it's in the mix. This is something that they practiced and, and, and wanted to keep. They didn't want to be told you need to stop this. So they say, forget you, Rome. We're going to go be our own church. All of this to say, <laughs> evangelicals use a wide variety of arguments to make the point that that verse doesn't mean what it means in 1 Corinthians. However, if you ask most of them why they think baptism for the dead is wrong, you will probably get something like, well, baptism isn't even necessary. Only faith is necessary. They tend, not all of them, but they tend to think that baptism, even for the living, is just a nice symbolic way of expressing that you belong to Christ. It's not efficacious in any way. It's kind of like finishing the hike where a deceased relative died as a nice symbolic way to help them finish their journey, even though it doesn't actually do anything. That's sort of how they see even baptism for the living. Um, at best, it's a nice thing. At worst, it's an insult to Christ because they're in the evangelical view, baptism is a work and humans aren't allowed to do any work to add to what Christ did because that's insulting to him saying that his work on the cross was not enough. So they're coming from a really good motive here. They're wanting to um, put the highest priority on the work of Christ. And, and we can respect that without having to agree with the conclusions that they come to. Um, the unfortunate bit about them rejecting baptism for the dead is that they do that because at least in part, they're rejecting the concept of baptism for the living, though many of them still practice it and think it's a nice, lovely thing. So I think a lot of Latter-day Saints get kind of stuck here because it's hard to understand why evangelicals see it the way they do. Um, and it sort of just turns into a, well, we do this, well, we do this, and it's a, a butting heads kind of situation. I want to suggest one way to talk about why baptism is so important to our faith. It just comes straight out of the Bible. Now, I've already told you, we don't have anywhere else to turn that talks, um, that uses the phrase baptism for the dead, right? It's in one spot. It's in this First Corinthians chapter. But we do get this really, really fascinating um teaching on baptism in first Peter. So first Peter three, he makes the argument that baptism is like Noah's ark. Here's what Peter says. 
after being made alive, he's talking about Christ, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, understood as people who had died, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water, the water of the flood, symbolizes baptism and now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter then goes on to say just a couple of verses later in chapter 4, he says, for this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. So it's easy for the modern reader to make some kind of hard lines between chapters. But the chapter and verse numbering system was inserted long after Peter wrote that letter. Imagine if you wrote an email and someone came behind you and divided your email up into chapters and verses. And the person who read it said, well, gosh, chapter two, he must be on about something different than in chapter three. I should separate those two in my mind. It's sort of the unfortunate byproduct of having this um, chapter and verse system. We need it. We, we have to be able to refer to them somehow. But we sort of get tricked into thinking What's talked about in chapter three is totally different than what's talked about in chapter four, but it's not. So if you take Peter's argument as a whole, I mean, this is my paraphrase, we get something like Christ wanted even the dead to be saved. Baptism is how this happens. For this reason, the gospel was preached to the dead. You can't separate faith and baptism is belonging only to the living not not here not in first peter he's not going to let you do that end of chapter three all of the beginning of chapter four he's linking this is this is for everyone the gospel is preached to the dead your evangelical friends and family members they might not immediately jump up and accept the idea after after you talk about this with them but it does move the conversation into a little bit more helpful place for them. Um, we have a lot of scriptures that they don't accept, right? So if you bring out a Book of Mormon verse, a Doctrine and Covenants verse, it, there's already a barrier for them to hear what you're talking about. If you can talk to them about baptism, some, baptism for the dead, something we would greatly disagree with them on, but do it from the Bible, Sometimes it makes for a way better conversation than just the the butting heads of we do this and, and you do this and you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Um, it, it lets them feel like you're taking scripture seriously and that you're not just trying to pull out one little random verse in 1 Corinthians where Paul one time uses this phrase and build an entire doctrine and practice around it. It's what they think we're doing. It's not. Um, so showing them somewhere else in the New Testament might help. Okay, that's all I have for you today. I don't remember what we're doing. I've tried to get in the habit of telling you what we're doing at the end, what we're doing next week. I don't remember what we're doing next week. Don't be surprised to both of us. Come back and we'll talk more. See you then.